Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 105 of the Ad Nauseam podcast. I'm down here in the bunker. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm here, as I always am, with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling today, Dave? I'm doing well, Jeff. It's uh, It's been a while, hasn't it? It has, yeah. We kind of ran into some of that holiday backup. Malaise? Mal- yeah, malaise, and just kind of things getting busy. And, yeah. Yeah, so it was been, it's been hard for us to get together, but, right. but here we are. Get the schedule going. Yep. I like the um, athletic kind of zippered pullover parka jumpsuit thing you're wearing. Oh, That's thank really you. nice. It's actually, it's, I actually wish it was a jumpsuit. Yeah. Right. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a deep purple. Fleecy? Yeah, fleecy. Glenn it's, Hughes, in honor of Glenn Hughes. Who's Glenn Hughes? Deep purple. Oh, I, I see. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Right. It's a pop culture rock and roll reference. I know, but the, you know, the, the lineup of that band has changed a zillion times. Okay. You know, so I, I th- when I hear Deep Purple, I think uh, David Coverdale. All right. Right. Uh, Fine. But, okay. <laughs> you don't like my references. I see where this is going. All right. You know, I'm always, I'm always trying to, I'm, you know, as Johnny Pop, I get a little prickly. You're really living right. into that title, aren't I am, you? I enjoy you it like it a lot. I do. I okay. do. I do. So, um, um, yeah, I'm doing well. I'm mm-hmm. trying to get back into, it's always a bit, it's difficult to kind of get back into the rhythm when we've been away from it. Right. But uh, I'm ready to dive in. You ready? I am. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. You think the audience is getting a little bit of um, a need fatigue? Well, I'm going to let them, the audience know what you said on the way over here. What so did I say? You said that even you yeah. were feeling a little Aeneid fatigue. Well, what right? carries me through is um, the words of Jean Biagio Conti. Right. In uh, Latin literature, a history. Yes. Which he said, by common consent, I'm paraphrasing, but Mm -hmm. it's close. By common consent, the Aeneid is the best poem by the best poet of all time. Ah, yes. Okay. And I'm just clinging to that. Gotcha. Gotcha. As we go through, I don't want to say slog, we go through book seven here. Right. uh, Realizing we have many more episodes to go. We do. Before we sleep tonight, we do, right? But we might, after this one, we might uh, yeah, dip our toes into uh, a few different pools, mm-hmm. right? Maybe talk about some other things, mm-hmm. um, and maybe take a break from it and come back at it with a uh, full vigor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, will we be dipping our toes in an above-ground pool? <laughs> Or an underground pool, <laughs> as gonna, they say. Are we going to get back into that again? It's been a year. <laughs> People may not remember, but yeah. they call this in uh, pop culture terms a deep cut. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So do you want to remind the... the no. The, okay, all right. No, I want them to go back and listen to the episodes that were December of 2021, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow. What a memory. Yeah, yeah. we spent a lot of time talking about where exactly <laughs> is the pool. <laughs> Jeff, we got a shout out. We do. Um, this goes to uh, Trent and Alicia Hordyke. Mm-hmm. And so uh, apparently Trent and Alicia, are they celebrating their first anniversary yes, coming up? Yes, yeah. the first wedding anniversary is coming up uh, December 10. Yeah. When is that? That's this coming Saturday, isn't it? Yes. So and I think by etiquette, you still have um, like five days to get them a gift? I Yeah, I do. What What do you think I should get for, 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 for Trent, Trent and Alicia? Maybe that, uh, that the Conte book. You think so? Yeah, exactly. You know yeah. that every year in um, anniversaries, there is some kind of... Um, material or substance that represents it. Are you, right. you familiar with this? Yes, I've looked at that list. It gets, okay. It, I mean, you, everybody, well, if the first one is, I forget what the first one is. It's something really cheap, like paper mache, right. pipe cleaner, I don't know. But everybody knows 25 is silver yeah. and 50 is gold. And 75 is platinum. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And uh, uh, 100 year anniversaries matching coffins, I think. 
<laughs> so I, I went a little macabre there. But between the the one and twenty five, there's lots of absurd. Kind there of are stuff. right, exactly. Tin foil. Who Tin knows <laughs> what's going on? So I'm not getting Trent and Alicia anything like that. But yeah, this shout out is their is their anniversary present. Yes, Trent has only been listening to the podcast for just a few short weeks. Okay, interesting uh, anecdote here. You want to hear this? I want to hear it. Um, I tried to introduce Trent to the podcast, and he had a very good question. He said, do you have to know Latin in order to listen to the podcast? And you said? Of course not. No. 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 It's, a, it's a nice added bonus. Right. But you don't need it. Of course no. not. And so that, that gave him the permission. Oh, I need to check this out. Yeah. And he dove right in. He started out with uh, Cranks for the Memories, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the first appearance of uh, one of our best guests on the program. Yeah. Lazy, La- lazy Steve. Right. Yeah. Lazy Steve. Right. He, he's been, I, I'm, I have a feeling he's going to show up. He's uh, going to show up. Soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he also, he writes, uh, um, I thought this was funny, by giving me baldness, the Lord has taught me what humility is. By giving me Alicia, his wife. The Lord has taught me what beauty is. Uh, spoken like a man who's been married almost one year. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's very sweet. Very nice, Trent. Isn't that nice? So happy anniversary to you both. Uh, thanks for living. Living. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Mm-hmm. We hope you continue to enjoy it. He's got a lot of episodes to catch up on. Oh, he's got a lot of work to do. Exactly. It's too bad he's a full-time student oh, because uh, maybe he should drop out, you think? Just drop just out. Just to listen to the podcast? Yeah, catch up. Take a, take a break. Yeah, um, I think that's a good idea. But I believe in Trent. All right. I believe, yes. So, Dave, we are back in the Aeneid this mm-hmm. week. We are going to get back into book seven. We made it kind of roughly, I think, about halfway through that book last that's right. time. That's right. And so, um, just to remind the audience, uh, the Trojans are here on the Italian boot. They're gonna, they're looking to kind of carve out their their new Troy here. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got made a shaky alliance with King Latinus there, whose wife Amata is not on board. No, she's not. No. Lovey doesn't uh, find much to admire in this newcomer, this upstart Aeneas. Right, and their daughter Lavinia is already betrothed to a Rutulian. Uh, Hercules kind of a guy, yeah. namely Turnus. Turnus, right. And so Amata was all in favor of that particular union, and she Correct. doesn't like these plans being shaken up. And so we're dealing with some of the uh, initial fallout from mm-hmm. that. And this is going to spill over into blood and gore yes. fairly soon. Yeah, there's a lot of fallout, boy, I tell you. Now, you just made, you made a double uh, pop culture reference there. Did I? Right. So I think the one you think you're making... Yeah. Is the one from The Simpsons. Okay. Right, where, where uh, Fall Out Boy is the sidekick to, uh, what's what's uh, the... Um, uh, Atomic Man. Atomic Man, right, yeah. right. Are you aware of the band that took the name from I have Out never Boy? listened to any of their music. Yes. I do know that they are a band. Oh, wow, okay. That's, so I threw that in for you. That, excellent. I appreciate that. Excellent. All right. Hey, can we, should we start with our opening quote yes. here? Yes, let's right. have the Ope quote. Okay, this comes from an article called The Shield of Turnus. From the, um, uh, referencing something from the latter part of this book that we're in by M.R. Gale in uh, the journal Greece and Rome back in 1997. Mm. I was in grad school at the time. So was I. Mm-hmm. Yes. What does Mr. Gale have to say about the Shield of Turnus? Well, he, he starts, it, it's, uh, it's, it's Britishy. Okay. It already irritates me. He says, two pieces of armor are described. Not two pieces? Two piece, no, it's a two-piece. Okay. It's a two-piece set. Two-piece of armor are described. Turnus's triple-crested helmet, decorated with an image of the fire-breathing chimera, and his shield, depicting the metamorphosis of Io. In what follows, I will argue that these two images suggest two competing interpretations of the character and fate of their wearer. Turnus can be viewed as an innocent victim of the gods caught between the machinations of Juno and Jupiter's plans for the future of Rome, or as an enemy of order and peace, irredeemably Compromised by his furor and battle lust, 
who must be destroyed so that the new golden age of Augustus can eventually be established. Abundant examples of either reading can be found in the critical literature of recent years, and it seems to me that both are in fact suggested by the text of the poem. The ambiguity surrounding Turnus's character and motivation can be further clarified in the light of the poet's handling elsewhere in the Aeneid and in the Eclogues and the Georgics of passion and violence and the possibility or impossibility of transcending them. These themes, I will suggest, are embodied in Turnus's two emblems, the fire-breathing monster and the defenseless woman transformed into an animal through the desires and jealousies of the gods. Interesting. So this shows up at the very end of this book. Right. And as I'm reading this opening quote, I'm not even sure we'll be able to get, get to the end I, of the book. <laughs> I think we will. Okay. Well, we'll see. All right. Um, but I, I find this kind of stuff interesting. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of layer of symbolism that the first time we see Turnus in this armor, we see kind of the duality of his persona. Okay. And it struck me also on the way driving over here. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob Seeger was on the radio, and when Bob Seeger comes on the radio, I tend to tune out. This is before you picked me up. This is before I picked right? you up, right. So I tuned out, and I started thinking about the Aeneid, right? Um, do you ever just drive around thinking about the Aeneid? Yes. It, right? Yeah? Yes, I do. Yeah. So I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about, so in the second half of the Aeneid is usually thought to be the Achilles phase, right? This is the Iliad. This is the Iliad phase of the of the, of the poem. We've gotten through the Odyssey phase, yes, right? Yes, we're in the Iliadic. Right. So... Um, in terms of kind of corollaries, it strikes me that, okay, um, Aeneas is the invader. He's coming into this foreign land. He would, superficially, he would be our Achilles character. Correct. Right? Okay. And that would make Turnus, uh, the rival of, of Aeneas, would be the Hector character. Correct. But I was thinking that while that, I, I certainly am on board with that, it strikes me that in terms of how the story plays out, who these characters are and how they relate to others is that Aeneas is very much more like Hector. He has a son. He, we kind of see him as maybe not quite a family man, but you know, Eulus has been part of the story, and yes, and I think that makes him more sympathetic. Well, Turnus is the one, as this art, as this little clip of this article says, he's the one who becomes visited by the the fury, right? And, for, and so it's that rage that overtakes him. And so while Turnus kind of plays that superficial Hector role, he's actually the Achilles here because mm. he's the one that rage turns into this monster. Mm. And while we see, then we see Aeneas more as kind of. Um, we see you more domestically, mm-hmm. even though he's the invader. What do you think about that? So we can, Virgil kind of playing with these archetypes. Right. Well, my only question is, what does this have to do with Bob Seeger? <laughs> well, as I said, when Bob Seeger comes on the radio, oh, I, find it very, I, I very, find it very easy to tune him out. I see. And my mind goes elsewhere. We've got book seven, Who Needs Tomorrow? <laughs> right, exactly. Let's make it last. Yes, exactly. So let's work on some of these okay. night moves here. Right. Uh, well, I think that often... Often, most often, Aeneas is compared by the literature not to Achilles until he's the the rage machine at the very end. At the very end. Book 12. Yes. He's most often compared unfavorably to Paris. This is a reverse, a Paris and Menelaus kind of a story. Mm. Whereas Paris comes to Sparta and steals Helen, and that's the cause of the war, the belly causa. Yeah. Now what we have is uh, Aeneas coming to Italy and stealing Turnus's fiance right 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 okay okay i see i i can see that as well right so um i do think you make a good point that turnus is compared more to achilles here than to hector because of the rage yeah i'm not completely convinced by gail's argument i find that perhaps the um the interpretation of the two images, the fire-breathing chimera and the metamorphosis of io Mm -hmm. on the shield i think he may be reading more into that than he really ought to. He may be guilty here of the the standard academic trope of seeing things that aren't there. You think so? I wonder. It, just, it strikes me that it's such, they are such distinct images 
that um, in a defense of Gale, it would seem to me right. that, that Virgil wouldn't just drop these just for the sake of like imagine this this picturesque piece of armor that it has to mean something. I mean mm-hmm. that seems in keeping with kind of the way that Virgil kind of layers this poem. So the fire breathing chimera represents uh, severity, savagery, cruelty, strength, mm-hmm. and speed. That's a very martial image. Yes, but I don't understand how Io, the metamorphosis of Io, unless it's just some kind of an insult to Juno. Um, because of course, well, whenever Io is mentioned, and we maybe should fill in the reader in case they're unfamiliar. Yeah, Io was a, a lovely Greek woman mm-hmm. uh, with whom Zeus, in his typical philandering way, fell in love. And uh, after consummating his, you know, desire, he had to hide her from his wife, yeah, um, Hera or Juno. So he transformed her into a cow, thinking yes. that would be the perfect disguise. Right. And then she was compelled to wander, harassed by a gadfly. Mm-hmm. Until such time as, um, I think she was uh, tied up by Hera and uh, guarded by Argus with a hundred eyes. Right. And then um, Hermes was sent by Zeus to slay Argos and, uh, and, free Io. and free Io. Right. So... I really don't understand how this plays into a characterization of Turnus. Right. I think what I what I would say is that um, I think Gail is trying to say is that we see in the two images uh, Turnus as kind of a rage monster okay. on the field and then as Io, uh, victim of the gods, right? And, oh, so because there is a victim portrayed on Turnus's shield, then Turnus is to be identified as a victim. As a victim, or at least that's uh, Virgil is saying... There are two ways to interpret this guy, I see. and he kind of leaves it to the audience to decide. Mm. Well, that's a little more persuasive. I don't think I really understood what Gail was saying. But I, I like what you, I like the layer that you added though, because the story of Io is has specifically something to do with Juno. Yes, right. It's and an so, insult. And so Juno is. What we see there is that Juno isn't so much pro Turnus as she is anti Aeneas. Oh, absolutely. Right? She so is she, very opportunistic. Right, and so she's maybe that's a, a kind of a, um, a symbol that says. He's going to be used Correct. by Juno. Anyone who will oppose Aeneas is a friend of Juno. Exactly. And Turnus is very, very uh, disposable, right? Right, 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 right. So I think maybe that's what that's what Gale is seeing in that mm. imagery. And so, and I think when we get to the very end of the Aeneid, right, that that, that very last scene where we have you know Aeneas versus Turnus. There's all kinds of ambiguities. Absolutely. There. And like, you know, how are we supposed to read that last scene? Right. And you know, how are we supposed to interpret Aeneas and then therefore also the character of Turnus? And yes. Maybe it's he's sowing the seeds right, right. here. Right. Yeah. While we're talking about uh, shields and images and so forth, yeah. I am uh, reminded of our earlier discussion about what you're wearing. Yes. And it occurs to me that this is a modern analog of this really ancient practice of decorating shields and so forth. Mm-hmm. You and I have both been trying in our senescence. Yes. Right? What are we now? Quinquagenarians almost. Yes. Uh, I, I am. You are not quite I'm yet. I'm close. You're close. Boy, am I close to turning 50. Yeah. And uh, so we've been trying to, you know, get ourselves in a little bit better shape. Yep. Um, you got to have the gear. Right? Yes. You got to have the filas and the pumas or the puma. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> and the champion and all the other stuff. Right. And, uh, and, you know, just by virtue of wearing something that looks athletic, it's kind of a sympathetic magic, right? It's very true. It's why people wear jerseys of sports stars. Yes. Because you hope that some of their tremendous athletic prowess will rub off just by virtue of wearing it's something with their name on it. It's very true, right. It's you, very silly, but it is. I think it's an analog to this ancient practice of decorating your shield with the chimera. Right, right. Or... As we know that the ancients did, you put the the head of the gorgon oh, on yes. your shield, right? Yeah, the epitropaic. Exactly, kind of thing. and so you're out there to 
petrify mm-hmm. um, figuratively, if not literally, your right. enemy, right? Right. It's like wearing a necklace that's uh, strung with wolf's teeth, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You have one of those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you wear it to the gym all the all time. All the time. Right. <laughs> but yeah, there is that, you know, dressing for success or kind right. of, you or fake it till you make it. Yes. It's all wrapped up in that, yeah, right? Dress for the job that you want, not mm-hmm. the one that you have. Exactly. It's similar, I guess, on the, um, the Virgilian battlefield and in the gym. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And it's, it's also uh, here, I think, in the gym and also on the battlefield, it's also about kind of intimidating those around you as well, really? right? Yeah, you're just kind of rubbing it in their faces. Is that So when you wear your champion sweatshirt and you look at the stack of weights, <laughs> the stack of weights just kind of withers a little bit? A little bit. Okay. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we got to get back into this. Where, yeah. where, I mean, where oh, were we? We're in it, Jeff. Okay. Well, I mean, we got to pick up where we left off. Okay. Right? So I think we're getting a bit ahead of things talking okay. about the end of the book. Yes. So um, I think when we last were doing the Aeneid, uh, Juno had, she's returned to the area. She's, yep. she's back from um, Argos. Yeah, a place sacred to her. Right. And so she is not happy about what she sees. And um, of course, as we've talked about, Juno knows that she knows the fate. She knows how this story is going right. to end, but she also knows that she can mess up all the stuff between point A and point B. That's right. Um, to make it as miserable as possible. That's correct. Right. All right. So I'm going to read a little bit of Lombardo's translation, which will get us back into this. Right. And right. this is, uh, we're about halfway through. It's around line 300. Yeah. 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 Okay. At home on the land, their ships empty, she stopped in midair, pierced with grief, and shaking her head, poured forth these words Ah, hated race, Phrygian fates at odds with mine. Couldn't they have died on the Sigian plain, defeated? Couldn't they have endured defeat? Didn't burning Troy cremate these men? No, they found a way through fire and foe. My divinity must be wearing thin, or I have grown content, my wrath appeased. Not exactly. When they were thrown out of their country, I persecuted the outcasts all over the deep blue sea. All the powers of sea and sky have been used against them. Hmm. So she's mad. Yes. (laughs) She's upset. Do you find Juno a little one note? She is a little bit one-dimensional here. Right. Yeah. She, I mean, I talk about this in my myth class. She plays a, a, largely a very thankless role in myth, sure. right? She's just kind of reacting to what her philandering husband is doing. Um, I mean, this is a little bit different. She's trying to, she's trying to, you know, she's doing, she's arm wrestling with fate itself. Right. Right. To, uh, to interpret this a little bit, I think that um, in the last 20 years or so, uh, film or movies, as I like to call them, mm-hmm. they've experimented more with the psychology of the villain mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. And uh, I'm not entirely comfortable with it because there's almost a, a valorizing of uh, villainous behavior yeah. and wicked behavior. But I think it's kind of a natural result of the fact that the villain in, in most of the movies has always been so one-dimensional. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so Juno is a little bit like that. Yeah. Right? If you're going to be a, a villainess, your role is really, really defined. There's not a lot of development, unlike the protagonist. Right, right, exactly. No, I've noticed that in films too. I mean, we, we, um, I've heard people say like the last 20, 25 years has been kind of the uh, the era of the anti-hero. Yeah. Now, you know, literature, film has always had anti-heroes. Right. But you have them, uh, you know, it makes me think of characters like Tony Soprano or mm-hmm. Walter White or Dexter. And um, I think that that modern narratives have kind of gone out of, out of the way to one, make them much more complex and nuanced right. and to sympathetic in a way that villains hadn't been before. And so, right. and I think the flip side of that is that the, the hero, then the good guys, not always, but often they become one dimensional. And, uh, and that's and, a great point. And, but, and I think it kind of comes, I think it comes out of a very cynical landscape where the you're idea right. that someone can be moral and good kind of comes off as corny. Yes, you're right. And so where do you find interest? Where do you find nuance? Well, it's in the people who are, conflicted yeah or even in portrayals of batman he's yes. a hero but is he right. you know 
So um, I'm t- I'm tired of it. Yeah, I'm tired. Of, I'm, I'm waiting for that pendulum to swing. Right. Yeah. You just said everything I wanted to say. Okay. <laughs> that's, ex- that's exactly right. So the first part you said um, that the villain has become more complex. Mm-hmm. That seems wise and good in terms of story development. Right. And I think that this is something Virgil does quite well with Turnus. Yes. As we'll see. But the second part, making the villain more sympathetic. Yeah. I can't really approve of that. Because yeah. the villain is often engaged in very immoral behavior. Right. And it makes it hard to cheer for the hero. Yeah. And I'm, I'm with you there. I think there is, I mean, I think there's value in in making the the villain not just simply a monster. Correct. Right. Uh, that you, that I think you see that evil is you know, part of being human. Yes. Right? Um, but it's not just a, um, a result of circumstance. Yeah. Right. When when the villain is portrayed as completely his his villainy or her villainy is completely a result of circumstance, mm-hmm. then the story's dead. Right. 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 There has to be actual will. Yes. Exactly right. So if you like to take the example of of Tony Soprano, have you watched The Sopranos? No. Okay. <laughs> well, if it's a pop culture reference, right. I don't know it. So it's a it's a mob. It's a yes. show about the Italian mob, right? In New Jersey, right? And, and one of the ways that it was you know different than than I think most kind of mob movies or shows is that we 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 see the central character Tony as a mobster doing horrible mobster things, but we also see him as a a husband and a father, right? And I, mean, I think the show is, does a very good and kind of suggesting that it's not just Poor Tony, the victim of his circumstance and his family, is that he chooses this. Right. right? And you, the, so there are many good things in his life. Yes. Which are inconsistent with the wicked things he does. Exactly. Right. And when you see him in the house, when you see him with his son and with his daughter, you can see the show. Okay, I, you, you can relate to that. Right. You can relate to him, kind of worrying about his 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 children. Right. And but also choosing this 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 lifestyle that turns him into a monster. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. 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 That yep. seems very good storytelling. Good. At least yep. as you've described it. All right, so Juno, right. in her one-dimensional kind of uh, mustache twirling, that, that, right. does Juno have a mustache? In this? No, but they don't do that anymore. They, they, that's no. Snidely Whiplash. Right, that's, I mean, that's really old school. Yeah, right? that's from the uh, the Canadian Mounties, right? Yes. Dudley Do-Right's uh, opponent, Snidely Whiplash. Exactly what right. a name. Yeah, name. well, he's kind of the quintessential one-dimensional villain, right? Right, he's yeah. the kind of person who's going to tie someone to the railroad track. All the time. You would think he'd get a different uh, a different uh, idea every once in a while. No. Snidely's not, not too bright. So Juno decides that she's going to, um, you know, pull out the big guns, and she sends this uh, this fury, Electo. Mm-hmm. And so um, Electo, she shows up uh, in uh, in Hesiod. Right. We learn that she is the daughter of Gaia, and she's had a very um, colorful origin study. Yes. Uh, fertilized by the blood spilled from Uranus when Kronos castrated him. Huh. Yeah. That was a very uh, fruitful surgery. There were a lot of things that came out of that, including uh, Venus. Venus, right. That's what everybody looks at in that story. But no, remember, the, the blood drops mm-hmm. are, have these own uh, uh, kind of horrible results. Including Electo, one of the furies. Yep. And so she's the sister of Tisiphone Tisif- and Megaira. The, uh, and those three furries, uh, they, they, furries, furies, <laughs> they, um, they, they, they fly themselves around with snakes for hair, blood drips from their eyes, and they have bat wings. Mm. Creepy creatures. So it's a chimera. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A combination of several different uh, animals with a little bit of human thrown in there. Yes, exactly. Perhaps the most vivid depiction of the Furies uh, would be in the third play of uh, Aeschylus, right? The Eumenides. Yes, right, right. Uh, from the Oresteian trilogy. Yes. Um, there's a wonderful uh, anecdote about that, and, I, and I, I need to track down where this comes from. I hope this is a digression, because it, that's mostly what we're doing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One more, please. Yes. All right. So... Um, in my myth class, we're doing tragedy. We're right. doing tragedy. And one of the students asked, 
you know, who went to see these plays, right? Right. And and there's lots of question about like were were women even allowed into the theater? Right? Probably not. Probably not. That's but, the consensus opinion. But one of the counter arguments is that there's this famous anecdote that during the the production of the Furies, when right. it, was, it was on stage, that when the Furies came dancing out, this the story goes, it was so terrifying that all the pregnant women in the audience immediately went into labor. Right. <laughs> now, of course. Not true, but the assumption behind the anecdote is that women were there. Yeah. So some people, that's one small piece of evidence that Interesting. maybe it was a, a mixed audience. That would be an odd um, anecdote to invent. It would. It, it's it's very unusual. Yes. So right. that is pretty, that's decent evidence. All right. So that's the third play in the uh, in the trilogy behind it. What's the first, uh, the Agamemnon. And then the Libation Bearers. And the Libation Bearers. Right. right. Yep. So Electo comes on the scene yes. as sent by Juno. And Electo is going to come down and inhabit whom? She goes after Amata, the queen uh, and wife of Latinus, and then she also later turns her rage on Turnus as well. Yes. yes, and I believe that Alecto comes down into Amata in the guise of a snake. Yes. It's very disturbing. disturbing. Slithers down into mm. her robe. It's creepy. It's creepy. Um, how about we do a little Latin here? I'd love to. Yes. So this is, I think we're picking it up at line 323 and following? Correct. And yes. this is the scene of the um, possession of Amata by Alecto? Yes. All right, here we go. 323. Nicely done, as always. Thank you. That's right. some great elisions here. Yeah, isn't that? In that second line, So an elision, as the, uh, the audience probably knows, is when one Latin word ends in a, a vowel or an M, and the next one begins with a vowel or an H, the two words are kind of crushed together yes. in pronunciation. Right, and that, that, that slurring of words often gives a... Um, well, it's, it's just a kind of a wonderful dramatic effect. Yes, it's yeah. a tremendous layering of meaning. So here we have luctificam, which means something like sorrow bringing, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that word is combined with the person of electo, who's bringing the sorrow. Yes. So it's a, it's a visual and an aural representation of the meaning. Yes. And so not quite the possession of Amata, but this is more kind of the, the Juno sending her and get a little bit of the right. backstory, right? Sorry. I, so, um, too enthusiastic. There. Yeah. Uh, so Lombardo translates, with these words, Juno descended to earth, a terrifying presence, and called forth Electo from the home of the dread goddesses and the shadows below. Gruesome Electo, whose heart is set on war and wrath, intrigues and crime. She is hateful even to Pluto, who sired her, hateful to her Tartarian sisters. So many shapes she assumes, so cruel her faces, so vile the black vipers that sprout from her scalp. Ah. So we get actually an alternate um, parentage here. So we we had just said not that Gaia, not Gaia, but here Pluto is the is the father of right. Uh, uh, but he, he he wants nothing to do with this particular daughter. No. Yeah. So Electo comes out, and yes, as you were saying, she uh, drops onto a Amata, drops into the chest of Amata, um, and yes, kind of slithers its way into her and kind right. of takes over her down persona. into her garments and yes. then into her being. Yeah. And drives her mad with this, with this, with this rage. Right. right, and one of the interpretations of this, of course, is Cleopatra, yeah. because very recently in the history of the Romans, we have the death of Cleopatra uh, by suicide via asp. Yes, um, the double suicide of herself and Mark Antony, mm. and uh, she was, of course, the opponent, right, the villainess of um, Augustus Octavian's right. life. 
Right, right, right. And so when she died in uh, Alexandria, this was very fresh in the imagination of the Roman elite. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, kind of a very obvious, uh, obvious uh, corollary. That's right. Now, talk, speaking of villains, right. right? You were just talking about villains as victims of circumstances versus villains who choose their their path. Right. Um, does this absolve Amata? Of being a villain, is she is, is her circumstance the fact that she's possessed by a by um, by an electo. So if, I, if you could compare it to like, like to the rage of Achilles, yep. you know uh, Homer does not say that you know some kind of fury descended upon Achilles. Or, no, or, uh, and you know insinuated itself. It was a it was a chosen rage. It's who he is. It's who he is. It's yeah. his core identity. Yeah. He was born to do this. Right. So uh, so do you see Achilles right. kind of rage is, is circumstantial because it's no. it's innate. No, 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 because nature and circumstance are separate things. Okay. Uh, if you are born with a certain nature, then your character flows from that naturally. It's not like the circumstances compelled you into it. And so I'm going to have to get a little theological to answer your question let's, about... Let's do it. Amata and Electo. Okay. Uh, but Amata, before the visitation of the Fury, Amata is already intent on the destruction of Aeneas. Good point. And having her way, you know, with Turnus being... Uh, the husband of her daughter. Yeah. So what Juno does, you know, is added to a willing participant, right? There is some consent, you might say, mm -hmm. in Amata receiving Electo the Fury. You can't imagine Electo coming into Latinus or some other sort of uh, character in the story. Right. Because they have different purposes and motives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It strikes me that, that like, Amata, or even Achilles, too, they have a, it's like a... Um, like an, like a predilection for alcoholism, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have you have kind of a predilection to an addiction, mm -hmm. and what Juno's doing here is kind of is uh, is tweaking it. She's fanning that flame. She's fanning that flame. Mm -hmm. Whereas in another character, that it would be um, more easy to resist. I, maybe not with the gods involved. But you, you know you what I'm saying? You wouldn't try it because it wouldn't succeed. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. That yeah. person is not going to be susceptible right. to that particular uh, that particular vice or that particular um, display of wrath. Yes. Right. So it's it's why. Um, the, the the ring is given to Frodo. Yes, because he's uh, he's thought to be um, unsusceptible to its temptation. Exactly right, no, or at least less susceptible. Yes, right. because he's simple folk. Right, right. We all know that short people uh, like Frodo, like myself, <laughs> right, less susceptible to certain kinds of temptations. Is that true? Uh, no, no, it's, it's the Napoleon complex. Oh, right, yeah, it's yeah. the opposite. Right. <laughs> and interestingly, uh, we've already run down Token, but. Um, and Lewis. Yeah. Interestingly, at the end of that story, mm -hmm. uh, the opposite is proven true, right? Frodo is just as susceptible to the temptations. Yes. It just took longer to get there. Right, 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 right. Which I think is good good storytelling. It is Tolkien's good storytelling. Part. Yeah, exactly. When he's standing in the in the cracks of doom and Correct. he decides, you know, maybe this maybe I'm not gonna go through with this. Right. After right. all this, no, I'm gonna keep it for myself. Right, right. So um back to Lombardo. Mm -hmm. This is how he translates um how an Amata goes to to uh, her husband. Right. And she tries to kinda of talk him out of this. Now that she has Electo right within her, she right. has the fury bent on rage and bloodlust and so forth. Right. So who's really speaking here? Right. Right. Um so she says, Will you give Lavinia to Tucrian exiles, you her father? Have you no pity left for your daughter or yourself? No pity for her mother, whom this traitor will desert with the first north wind sailing away with our girl as plunder? So there, yeah, then wasn't this how Paris entered Lacedaemon and bore off Helen to Ilium? So there you were, there's that, uh, right. that comparison, right? Um, what of your solemn promise? Right. So if I can just interrupt you. Yeah, here. yeah. So notice the way in which Amata tries to convince Latinas first. Mm. It's completely an appeal to his uh, fatherly care and affection. 
Yes. It doesn't go based on justice. It doesn't go based on her own interest, because I think ultimately it is Amada's interest that that matters here. But, you know, as a shrewd orator or oratrix, she begins by appealing to his sense of fatherly affection. Yeah. Don't treat your daughter this way. And she pulls in historical precedent. Yes. Don't you recognize Aeneas is just another Paris? Yeah. He's come here to steal Helen. Yeah. And then moves next to uh, the question of right and wrong. Yes. What of your solemn promise? Right. Can what, you continue there? Yes. What of your old love for your own? What of your hands so often pledged to turn us your kinsmen? If it has been decided that we need a son-in-law of foreign stock, if the words of your father Faunus are so important, then I maintain that every land not under our rule is a foreign land, and the gods agree, Turnus himself, if he traces lineage, is descended from Inachus and Acrisius with roots in Mycenae, the heart of Greece. Right. That's actually quite persuasive. It is persuasive. And I would like to point out that uh, Inachus here mm-hmm. is the son of Io, right? Oh, yeah. So this is why, this is why uh, Io is on the shield of Turnus. Or because- one of the reasons why. Okay, I was trying to run down Gale a little bit. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was trying to, I don't know, sail into Gale's crosswinds, <laughs> you might say. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, yeah. Was a, that was a pun. What? Oh, Gale, I got it. Yeah, Good. N- nobody else did. Uh, well, Why who, do I even try? Who, Why do I come here week after week and unload these puns? Who knows? Maybe the audience out there, is, they jump on it and they're, they're, they're cackling with laughter. Well, we can only hope. Yes. All right, so so one of the reasons one of the reasons he is yes. descended. I'm sure Gail knows that. Yeah, he is descended from Anakis, and so he's got to show his lineage. But Gail sees in that a story of victimhood. Yes, or at least one aspect of it. I think we can say that it can be two or three things, right? It doesn't right. have to be one thing. All right, but yeah, I think you've hit on yes the kind of the the historical legendary purpose of the Io symbol is kind of connects him to this family. I suppose, right? but so, it means more than that. So to go back to our gym gear analogy, yeah. right? Nobody's going to wear a sweatshirt that says weakness on it. No, right? no, you no, no. wear champion. No one's going to come up with loser. Right. 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 <laughs> Could be a business opportunity, though. Ooh, you think that's a gap that needs to be yeah, filled there? Yeah, right. Instead of uh, champion clothing, how about loser, loser or vanquished? That might have worked in the 90s, I think. You think so? Yeah, that's more of a Gen X thing, kind of that, okay. that kind of loose irony. They'd live into that. I don't know how they fly. that would fly anymore. Okay. Right. Right, so um, Latinus, he's unmoved by mm. this. He's not persuaded. And that's when she kind of goes full, um, full uh, Bacchae. Electo, right. Yeah, she goes full Electo. Um, Virgil compares her uh, in this wonderful simile to a spinning top, just kind of whirling about, uh, a dervish going, mm. bouncing from place to place. Skipping across the courtyard. Yes. All right. And so she grabs her daughter and says, all right, if, you, if Latinus isn't on board, I'm going to you know, take her away. Take matters into my own hands. own hands. Make her unavailable. Right. And so, yeah, she runs away into the woods. She's shrieking that Bacchus... Dionysus is the is only worthy of her daughter now, and she goes full bacant. Yeah, and she even grabs her thyrsus. Right. So she's. So maybe we should explain to the audience what a thyrsus is. Thyrsus is, is the is the staff of Dionysus. Yes, it's a, a, a long piece of wood. It has a pine cone on, on it. top. Yeah, has some kinds of uh, tendrils of ivy growing around it. It's supposed to be a kind of magic wand, I think. Yeah. When he waves it across the landscape. The flowers, you know, come to bloom and bloom, so forth. Right. Yes. Wine or w- water comes up out of the ground. Right. Right. And where, where can you get one of these? Oh, you can actually. I was looking that you can get a, a thirst of your own on Etsy. Are you being serious? I'm being serious. Right. <laughs> How many did you order? I. I well, the. Do they come found, by the dozen? They, they, I, well, the one I found was seventy-five dollars. Oh, you're kidding! I'm way too cheap. Right. I want to find my thirstus on a discount. Right. Yeah, I would yeah. say so. Right. So this is a ruse, right, on yeah. Amada's part. She's saying, you know, in order to avoid having my daughter marry Aeneas, if I can't win the argument with my husband Latinus, 
I'm just going to spirit her away into the woods and say she can only marry Bacchus. Yes. That's the only uh, recourse left. Right, exactly. And so we uh, we see a bit of, um, well, it, it reminds me of Euripides' play. Right. right. So she, she leads not just her daughter, but she gets all the other women of the town yeah. whipped up, and they go out on the, on the hillside. She's very much like Agave right. in the Euripides' play. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Throws on a fawn skin. Yes. And leads the women into the forest. Yes. Speaking of fawn skins. Right. It's time for the ads. <laughs> This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett, with offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts, has been purveying high-quality translations of the classics and many other fine works to a broad audience for 50 years. Yes, exactly 50 years. This is their anniversary That's year. That's right. The golden one. Yes, exactly right. So uh, we love these guys. They've been, uh, they took a chance on us. That's right. Yeah, and Long been, ago now. Long ago. They've been with us since the very beginning. Um, and it's one of these where they, they've been wonderful to us and they just put out a great product. They do. Love their texts, love mm-hmm. the, the, love the artwork, uh, love the affordability. Um, this, uh, next semester I've got, uh, two classes where my textbooks have orders are exclusively from, from Hackett. That's excellent. Right. Yeah. They also put out the, uh, fantastic Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata series. Which is, you use on Latin Pure Diem, That's right? correct. Yeah. They, they picked up that line from the old Focus Publishing and now, uh, they continue to, you know, Distributed to a wide audience, really high quality, full color, hardback materials. The all of the books in that series, you really can't beat it. It's great. So, audience, check it out. Go to hackettpublishing.com. Just take a take a, a scroll through their huge catalog. It's not just classics; it's 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 everything. And find the stuff that you want. Um, put it in your little grocery basket. And if you type in the coupon code AN. Two zero two two. It's ad nauseum and the current year. Yeah, make sure you don't put it in backwards. No typing in two two zero two N A. No, no, no. Yeah. That's not gonna work. No, not you at gotta all. Gotta go forward. A N two zero two two. And Dave, what will that get them? I think that gets them one uh, percent off. No, 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 and no, no. double the price of shipping. It's twenty percent off. Oh, really? And free shipping. No way. Yes. That so is an excellent deal. It is. Check it out today. This episode of Ad Nauseum also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Dave, have I talked about how much I love the ratio, how it pours? No. Just, why don't you talk a little bit about the pouring of the pour over? The, the aesthetic of the pouring. Right? Yeah, so you're I have the, just a poor boy, aren't you? I'm just a poor boy, right? Yep. Exactly. My, but my, my story is seldom told. Um, this morning, I brewed up another um, batch of coffee in my ratio eight, mm-hmm. and it was it came down to the elegant hand-blown borosilicate carafe. That's incredible. And um, I get it ready to go, and just the way it pours into the cup is, is worth the price it's of It's a thing of beauty, It huh? is a thing of beauty. Right. Right. And uh, I used to have the six. Um, that was a wonderful machine, too, and uh, I've graduated to the eight. Did you re-gift the six? No, I still have it. Right. Why, why are you keeping it I, around? I have it because... The, the, is it just greed? It's not just greed. The, the six had the six had the, uh, the, the, the craft that kind of uh, oh, keeps right. the temperature, right? The hulking flagon. Right. And so I, I like to keep that on hand if I want mm-hmm. to have some coffee you know, now and maybe a little bit later. Yeah, two or three hours and it's still full temp. Right. And it's that's, amazing. And that's without the, the roasting pan underneath. That's it's correct. A, it's incredible. So I woke up this morning mm-hmm. and... Uh, my typical routine is to pour some water into the eight. Yep. I've got the one with the uh, oyster color and yes. the walnut accents fits my kitchen really nicely. And uh, I ground the beans very fine, which actually you're not supposed to do. Really? Not for the eight. No, because um, you have to have a little bit of a coarse grind. It's uh, the instructions say about the consistency or texture of a uh, 
raw sugar or coarse sugar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you keep any of that on hand? I keep raw sugar on hand, yeah. Do you keep coarse sugar? No, I don't keep coarse sugar. No. No, no the kind of sugar that, you know, swears at you and... Uh, <laughs> It's a little bit rude. This is a yeah, terrible house guest. That's right. Yeah. I had to buy some coarse sugar to compare it to my coffee just to see, <laughs> oh, how am I supposed to do this? But this morning I grinded up really fine. I mm-hmm. ground it up fine because um, I have an aftermarket cone, right? Mm. So uh, for the ratio H, you use these really large Chemex paper cones. Right. And uh, when I ran out, uh, I bought an Able cone, which uh, is partnered with ratio. And um, because it's in the early stages of its life, uh, it works extraordinarily well. So okay. I can extract even more flavor ah, from my coffee. Very nice. Yeah, and I had a delicious pot, maybe three or four uh, cups. is very good. When I'm working, can't beat it. Fantastic. So listeners, um, if you want one of these wonderful machines, the six or its older brother, the uh, the eight, go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O coffee.com. Take the, pick the machine that you want. And if you put in the code, um, it is A-N-C-O-K-5. Mm-hmm. Klondike. Klondike 5, yes, A-N-C-O, Klondike 5. Um, that will get you 15% off your entire order. Yeah, let's. can I just play, um, uh, you know, uh, Dak and Blecker ad- advocate here for sure. a minute? Sure, sure, sure. Maybe someone's saying, Jeff, you yeah. know, you and Dave have been talking about the Ratio 5 for how many dozens of episodes now? And I understand it's a great coffee machine. Yes. But there's no way I can pay that much because I've looked at the price and, you know, this is not an ex- inexpensive throwaway kind of machine what would you say to such an objection i would say that like my my dad you say to me you you know you get what you pay for right right these are machines that um uh yes it's a little bit it's uh, well it, it's a uh, it's not cheap right but um they are exquisite machines mm-hmm. and they will last you a long time yeah you can, decades i'm sure decades right where the other i've had the the deck and bleckers and the, right the, and the senor cafe that's right and they they last for a, you know a little bit and they sputter out and they just wind up in the dumpster yeah 14 15 months maybe right of squirty plastic and then they get clogged and they break it's just not the way to go it's not worth it they look great um they will you know, complement the the other wonderful things in your kitchen um great to look at great taste um I can't recommend it highly enough. Check it out. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it now, mm-hmm. Amata Lovey, the wife of Latinus, yes. is going to take a little bit different tack here. Right. Well, she's going to go after Turnus. Is that what you're referring to? That's what I'm referring to. Right. And so in this case, instead of turning into a snake, she takes on the form of uh, one Kalube, who is an old priestess of Juno. And uh, uses a shaming tactic here, okay. right? And it's like, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you know, um, are you just going to sit there and let these, uh, these 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 Trojan boys waltz into your territory? These interlopers, yeah, right. And so um, that she kind of edges him on that particular way. How, hmm. how about a little bit more Latin here? I'd love to, right? So this is line uh, four thirteen, lines four thirteen and following, and this is the Fury Electo, right, disguised as um, Amata speaking to Turnus. Yes. Said for Tunafuit tectis hic turnus in altis, yam mediamni gra carpebat nocta quietem, alecto torwam faciet furialia membra, exuit in vultus se se transformet anilis, et frontabsce nam rugisar et induit albos, cum vita crinis tum ramin nectit oliwai. Very nice. Now, Lombardo. There's a lot of illusions in there. It's rapid, rapid poetry. Right. Yeah, exactly. Just like the, the, the previous passage. Lombardo translates, And she threw a torch at the young hero, sticking it in his chest where it smoked with black light. Turnus woke in terror, sweat pouring down, drenching him to the bone. He called madly for arms, groped wildly in the bed for weapons, lusting for steel in the rut of battle, rage, 
crowning all. Mm. So it's very Achillean. Yeah, it is. Right? And it's it's a great translation, by the way. Yeah, it yeah, isn't that that's so nice, right? Captures it really nicely. So he is in a dream, right? Yeah. And it's a gripping, vivid, violent dream. Do you ever uh, with your friends, uh, family, discuss dreams? I haven't lately. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes I'll share them with, with Beck if it's a right. particularly kind of odd or weird one. Right. right. Yeah. I try not to recount disturbing dreams because I don't want to remember them. Mm. And of course, as soon as you recount a dream, at least my experience is, then it's stuck there. Yeah. No, you, totally You can't true. dislodge it from the memory. Yeah. So the best thing to do if you have a disturbing dream is just not think about it. <laughs> It seems to me. That works for you? Yeah, yeah. that works for me. Yeah. But here he has a vivid dream in which this torch is thrown and sticks in his chest. Yeah. And he wakes up and what happens? He, he goes he goes crazy, right? Mm-hmm. He goes and he's calling for armor. He's ready for he's ready for war. Mm-hmm. Now one of the, one of the things that we kind of just glossed over is is when um kind of before she throws the torch or however we're supposed to imagine that. Um she basically, she she tries to shame him like you know, right. what are you doing just sitting around and right. and I think it's what's striking is how Turnus just throws it right back at her it's like you you don't think I understand what's going on right you don't think I understand what what's at stake here mm-hmm. um, but it, it it takes kind of this this nightmare this living nightmare to kind of throw him into overdrive mm-hmm. so Turnus calls the Rutulians his kinsmen to arms against both Latins and Trojans mm-hmm. right so the Latinus he's, well, he's a traitor now too because right. he he broke his he broke his pledge and um. I thought this was this passage. This is again Lombardo's translation. Again, uh, he writes that the Rutulians, when uh, you know, Turnus, Turnus calls them to battle, they were stirred by his good looks. Like, oh, he's handsome. Right. Let's follow him. Right. Well, why do you find that amusing? Just, you don't think that's how it works? Well, no, I think it's exactly how it works. Right. I think that's. I find that. I. Uh, it, it's like it reminds me of when. Um, there's like some huge political issue. I was just going to say let's that. Say, and say, let's find out what Mariah Carey has to say about the capital gains tax, <laughs> right? You're attractive. You must know something. Well, I was thinking in terms of um, the fact that there has, hasn't been a president under six feet tall in something like 150 years. Is that right? I think James Madison is a tremendous outlier and because uh, he was a very small man. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea generally is that it's just human nature to respect large, physically impressive people. Yes, and if you're not large and good looking and physically impressive, you're going to have a hard time uh, competing in public. Right. Exactly. Right. I was just talking in my film class. We were uh, talking about kind of you know, the uh, the changes in film that happened in the 1960s mm. and this, you know, the transition from Eisenhower, right. who was 70 when he left office, and then JFK, right. who was 43. You know, and he's this uh, thick head of hair, thick head so of forth. hair. You know, you know, yeah, handsome, dashing with right. his beautiful wife. Is um, I mean, this is this is a, it's a classic example of that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's handsome. He must know what he's talking about. Yeah, it's right? it's very much, I would say, ingrained in human nature. Yes, in right. the book of Samuel, First Samuel, a couple of weeks ago, you were making some Old Testament references. So I'd like to make one if yeah. I may. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The book of First Samuel, uh, Saul is chosen as the first king of Israel. Just thinking of that, he's a Benjaminite, uh, but they say he's um, head and shoulders above everyone else. He's much taller and he's good looking. Yeah, and so people go after him. Right, he looks like a king. Right, right. Yeah, that's it's it's fascinating. How does one look like a classicist? <laughs> I don't know, kind of frumpy, frumpy, schlubby, full frump. Full- <laughs> Front, right? What does schlubby mean? I don't know no. that. But we I talk, like it. We do remember if we if you remember the uh, Married to a Classicist episode. Oh yeah, one of the games that my wife likes liked to play at the old conferences was Is classicist, not classicist. Right, and so she, I mean, she could pick them out just a mile a away. mile away. Right. Well, again, it's you know dress the part. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, sh- sh- 
shrumpy, flumpy. You, you can make up a lot of words. Flubery. Flubery. A little flubery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to have the, you know, the tweed jacket with the leather patches on the corners. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it wasn't just that Turnus was was just uh, just dropped in handsome. He had a uh, high lineage. He had, mm-hmm. you know, he had the right family connections. And he was a good soldier. His prowess in battle was second to none. How do you keep track of that? Uh, I don't know how they had the scoreboard. Notches on the um, notches on the shield, maybe. Maybe that's it. Uh, ribbons on your spear. I'm being serious. Yeah. You're not facetious. Yeah. Uh, I guess they had the memory of the things he had done, uh, but there had to be some kind of a record keeping, like a little bead system, like when you're playing pool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Right. Or it reminds me of um, you'll see like on um, college football players' helmets, they'll get a little sticker. That's right? correct. If they do a, if they get a tackle or something. Like right. That, right. Never occurred to me that the sticker system is. Um, it's a little childish. <laughs> That's right. Sure, you're a grown man pummeling another one at full speed, you know. Right. And you get a sticker? Exactly. It's what I use with my children in potty training. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a sticker for potty training successfully or, you or know, for tackling a running back exactly. at full speed. Interrupting you know? a pass. Right. Right. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. But um, I just thought in the, and I don't know if it's, this is uh, uh, accurate to the Latin, but um, it's his good looks that are mentioned first. Right. Lineage second and his prowess in battle last. Mm. I, would, I would reverse those. Really? If I would, if I, in terms of That's because you're a substantive person, right? For you, it's, uh, it's esse quam videri. It's uh, substance over appearance. I'd like to think so. But yeah. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure we've all fallen into that. Despite the deep purple sweatshirt you're sporting. Yeah. But I think we've, we've probably all fallen into that. Oh, yeah. That, you know, hands, you know uh, attractiveness equals intelligence. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've talked about this before on the podcast. Since we're digressing, there's yeah. good evidence that uh, children that are more attractive get more attention from their parents. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a real sad fact of life. Man. Yeah. All right. All right. Moving on. Juno's meddling. Yes. Yeah, so what's the result? So um, in the, so in this next episode, um, so Ascanius uh, sets off to hunt in the woods. And let's let's just refresh people on who Ascanius is because they may be entering this midstream. Right. So um, son of um, of Aeneas. Right. He also goes by Eulus. Yeah. So Ascanius, son of Aeneas, and his mother was Creusa. Right. Way yes. back in Troy, and he's been dragged around the Mediterranean. When was his big Aristea? When was his big moment of glory? Did did I did we miss that? No, no, no. It was book five. Remember? Are you talking about the Trojan game? Yes. That was his moment of Aristea? Yes. It's also he's the one that alerts his father that the ships are on fire. Okay. Right? I forgot that big moment already. Well, I, I, it's a pretty weak moment in terms we of Aristea. We compared it to the Shriners on their motorcycles in the parade. <laughs> exactly right. It's an important moment it of is his coming moment. of age. He's a young Telemachus. Yeah, but would you call it his Aristea? Uh, it's, it's all he's got so far. Okay, well, let's we'll see how this pans out. Right. He's also called Ulyss, yes. right? Which is really central to the story because Ulyss sounds suspiciously like Julius. Julius. Who is the father of Augustus Caesar. Exactly. So he goes off into the woods and he um, shoots a deer. And it just happens to be the favorite uh, kind of pet of one of Latinus's herdsmen. So the yes. herds, the shepherds are upset. You don't want to irritate the shepherds, apparently. No, no. This is a very special animal. Yes. Right? This is a, an albino stag. Yeah. Right, right. And uh, these are a rare uh, kind of creature. Uh, Ascanius is just innocently hunting, mm-hmm. right? It's what the children of nobility do as they practice for war. They innocently hunt. But this animal is special. Yeah. So the animal staggers back to um, his master before dying. And the herdsman summons the other shepherds to track down the hunter. And then the Trojans, uh, sensing a commotion, come to Ascanius' aid. Uh, many Latins are slain in a brief skirmish, and then each side retreats uh, temporarily. Yeah, so this is like accidentally running over your neighbor's dog. Yeah, 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 right. right? I've never done that, and uh, 
hopefully never will. But imagine that the hard feelings that would engender. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, you say, well, it was totally an accident. Well, didn't you look right? You back out of your driveway and not look around to see if my special pet is there. Yeah. This is what Ascanius does. So you take it kind of his, um, his, uh, I mean, could you look at this, that this episode and say Ascanius, it's an albino stag. You should have known better. I I don't know. Uh, It doesn't seem like that's Virgil's point. It seems to me that Virgil's point, at least as I have traditionally or typically interpreted this, is he's showing that the cause of great uh, human suffering and conflict can be actually quite inconspicuous and small. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this, this leads to world war up and down the peninsula. And what's the cause? Accidentally shooting someone's favorite animal. Right. Right. It, it seems so inconsequential. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If you think about um, the, the, how you know World War II broke out, if you, mm-hmm. if you it, so it's the not to say that the the assassination of the Archduke was. You're thinking of World War One. World War Sorry, World War One. That's right. Gavrilo Princip, the right. guy's name. Exactly right. But if you, if you you know you read that story, kind of of all the the weird right. accidental things that yes. that had to happen for that to take place is it's right. unbelievable. Yeah, it was in Yugoslavia, I think Sarajevo. I remember first learning about that, and uh, when I was in in high school. And I think that the teacher made a good point, right? This was the catalyst, right? The fuse that lit the first major world conflict. And it seems so ridiculous at yes. the start. Right. And then one of my favorite details, in as much as someone have a favorite detail about an assassination, <laughs> is that, you know, so uh, Princip was there to, to do this deed. Right. He missed his, he missed his first opportunity. And so I he, didn't know that. he gave up and he actually went into a store and got a sandwich. Really? Came out with a sandwich and the Archduke's car... Uh, just happened to be going by and installed huh. and he stepped forward and made the shot yeah it's it's, it's crazy so he was a member of the group uh, the black hand the black hand yes right? yeah. anarchists yeah yeah and so the this the um the car stalled the car stalled right, right. so there, i mean there were other, there were other guys involved and there was some you know bomb throwing that didn't didn't go well right and then the driver kind of panicked and was going to take another route to the where he was supposed mm. to give a speech and um it's parked, stalled right in front of Prince who's standing there with a sandwich in one hand and a gun in the other. Incredible. It's unbelievable. Do you know what kind of sandwich it was? I'm, I'm thinking it was some sort of salami. You think so? Because it was like an Italian deli or something. It was You're like, being serious. I am yeah. being serious. I'm resisting the <laughs> urge to make jokes based on past references because a man's life was taken here. And yes. A world war was inaugurated. Right. But it's hard not to think of how ridiculous human life is sometimes. Yeah. He's standing there with a sandwich and assassinates the Archduke, yeah. Francis Ferdinand, I think, and yep. then World War. World Millions War. Millions of people's lives were ruined. Exactly. Yeah, so one, one, one small domino mm. knocks over a million others. Yeah, the butterfly effect. So yeah. here we have a similar thing with the death of this favorite stag, this albino deer. Right, and that falls into a trope that um, James Fraser... Uh, ah, the golden bow. The golden bow uh, talks about this in comparative mythology, about kind of the, the sacred animal that's killed and that leads to um, you know, kind of bigger and, and more terrible things. Mm. And so this reminds me of you know uh, you know Artemis has the her favorite stag that is one of Hercules' labors to capture. Mm-hmm. He's not allowed to kill it, but he has to he has to go and hunt it. The Cyrenian hind, yes, belongs to Artemis, right? And right. he ends up breaking off its antlers. Right, right. He's got the golden antlers, right? right? And the, the, it's got bronze hooves. He's got to run for a year to catch the animal. Yes, right. Um, I think the, the you know the better corollary here is are the Greeks who kill the 
the, uh, the, the another sacred animal to Artemis at Aulis. Right. And she causes the winds to stop. Right. Until, and the sacrifice of Iphigenia. Right. So it demands a, a human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you know, Fraser talks about that. You, you find this in lots of traditions. You know, there's the sacred snake, the sacred bear, the sacred ram, even a sacred turtle and buzzard yeah. um, that are killed. And then mm. there's big fallout. Well, I can see kind of an analog in domestic life. Mm. Right. Let, let's say in, in family life here, I'm not going to get too personal or autobiographical. <laughs> in family life, if there's any kind of a little irritation or something, you know, in the normal routines of uh, marriage and family, if someone takes the last slice of pizza, Ooh. right? Yes. Or, you know, finishes off the last bit of cereal or whatever the food is, or you say you got a box of donuts mm-hmm. that, that grandma dropped off, someone takes the last donut, that object becomes the unexpected catalyst for a much larger conflict it's very true right it's so true you say what are we arguing about well we're not really arguing about the donut there's there's bigger things behind this yes right right now in the last couple of weddings i've attended Mm. Um, can, can I ask first? Yes, please. Does that ever happen in the Winkle House? Oh, what I just described all the time. And let me. I'm the, my story is, is okay. Okay, is, is germane. Um, and so uh, last couple of weddings I've gone to again the reception, they'll have like a box where the bride and groom will ask, like you know, if you have advice for us, oh. right? You know, put it in a box, right? That seems like such a unwise thing to do. I, I, ask for advice no. at your wedding. Don't no. give us any advice. Please, no. Just leave us alone. <laughs> leave us alone. <laughs> let us make all our own mistakes. Exactly right. Because who wants to read all of that immediately right. after you get married? Right. Yeah. So both times they had like a box or a jar. Right. And the, what I wrote down was never take the last of anything. Yes. And I think I, I think that's, I, I think as far as advice goes, that's really good. Nice job, Jeff. Right. That is excellent advice. Yeah. I wish you had come to my wedding and dropped that <laughs> off. Never take the last of anything. Yeah. So in, in the uh, in the perfectly unselfish home, right? There would just be rotten food everywhere. <laughs> right. Yes, the uh, unintended consequences right. of that. Right. Because no one would take the last of anything. Yeah. So. Yeah. So anyway, the shepherds and and Queen Amada they all clamor for Latinus. Say hey, you gotta you gotta launch war against the Trojans. Uh, again, Latinus he does not want to. He's hesitant, um, but he recognizes that this this situation is quickly spiraling out of his control. Um, and then Juno. Pulls the plug on Electo. Mm. So she's done enough and, and uh, mm. now starts to steer the conflict in a more personal kind of way. Mm. Yes. So can I read some of the uh, Lombardo translation here? Right. I, 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 I single this out just because, I mean, it's um, maybe beating the Electo thing a little bit to death. But no. th- it's it's such a great exit that's that, a, that's that she gets. That's an odd expression, to beat a fury to death. Right. <laughs> it is a great exit. So, yeah, uh, give us the translation. Yeah, it's right? a grand exit, yes. right? All, the, all exits should be grand. And all entrances should be grand. Really? Isn't this how you come into the classroom? Like a, with fanfare and trumpets blazing and I was, blasting? I, I did I, I, I fantasized um, many years ago about like having like intro music, you know how like a, a baseball yes. uh, player will come to the plate and they all right. have, they have their entry music. They have their own song, right? right? Their theme song. What would yours be? I, I for a while I thought it would be like uh, Soul Man. I'm oh yeah, right. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Who is this? Is it James Brown? Uh, it's not. I forget who that is. Not mm. James Brown. But how, how about you? Off the top of your head, entry music? Well, I'm thinking something from, you know, the Rocky genre, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Something exactly. that's got a little bit of a, a fighting beat, something from Survivor. Pumps up the class. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's all going to be downhill from there. So <laughs> we got to key them up, right? All right. Uh, give us the Electo's right. exit then. Thus Juno, daughter of Saturn, serpents hissed in Electo's wings as she spread them wide, leaving the world above for her home in Coxitus. There is a place in the heart of Italy, beneath towering mountains, the famed Vale of Amsanctus. Dark woods surround it, and a stream roars through its center. 
spilling over rocks and swirling in eddies. Oh, the swirling eddies. <laughs> Here can be seen a dread cavern and fissures through which the Dark Lord breathes, and a vast gorge that belches out Asheron. Here the fury disappeared, relieving heaven and earth of her abhorrent presence. Isn't that, isn't that spectacular? It is. Right. It's not only uh, a great translation, right? It's, it's a great translation of just brilliant poetry. It's brilliant poetry, right? And I love I, I get how Virgil here um, doesn't just give Electo a great exit. He locates this. Um, he's basically saying, if you live in Italy, you too can go here. That's right. right. You know exactly where it is. Do you have any idea what the veil of Am Sanctus is? I, I, couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't picture that. No, I did not know. So I looked it up. Oh, what'd you find? Uh, well, it's along the Via Appia. And it is uh, in Campania, right? So north of where, uh, I guess south of Rome, yep. uh, between Rome and Naples. And apparently there are two little pots there. Two, sm- uh, sorry, did I say pots? Say pots. <laughs> pools. Okay. Two little pools there which exhale carbonic acid gas and hydrogen sulfide, according to Wikipedia. Okay. And uh, a temple of the goddess Mephitis. And a cave for the uh, release of these suffocating vapors. Okay, okay. Which means it's the perfect spot perfect to spot. imagine an entrance into the underworld or an exit, in this case, from the upper world. Right. Not entirely all that too far from a place like uh, Kume, right? That's right. And, and um, you know, Lake Avernus. And That's right. Other sulfurous volcanic uh, um, fumes. Right. Yeah. Like so. what pours out of your faucet, right? <laughs> yes. Right, right, right. All right, so Electo's on the way out. Yes, and uh, so are we. We are. So, uh, We're up against it. We are up against it. So when we begin next time, uh, Juno is is coming down to take things into her own hands, mm-hmm. and she is going to open the gates of war. That's correct. And we're going to talk Which at is, some length about what that means and what that would have meant for a Roman. Right. It's yep. quite a process, I understand, to open the gates of war. Really? I don't think it's a combination lock. I think it's a series of uh, skeletal keys, maybe. No punch code? Like, you know, the I don't think five so. Five digits? Or the no. little fob. You know, we're so spoiled, we don't have to remember anything. Right. Just hold up the little electrical doohickey and yeah, yeah, yeah. grants you access. This is a much more elaborate process. You don't just step up and grab the handle. No, no, no. no, no. To open the gates of war requires quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, we're going to look at some of the instances in Roman history of when the gates of war were opened. Right. A great name for a tour, right? What, what the, a tour? Yeah, for, you know, like a rock band tours, oh, Gates yeah. of War. Gates of War. I think the, the Swirling Eddies, that's what they Did call they? their, like their 93 concert that tour. That doesn't seem right. No, right. <laughs> All right, Dave, we got to get out of here. So, um, as always, we have some people to thank. But before that, you want to tell us a little bit about the Moss Method in in Latin per diem? Yes, I would like to, indeed. So, the Moss Method is a a Greek program I have developed that will take you from... What's it again? What's my slogan? It's from neophyte to erudite. Thank you. So, neophyte is just a tender shoot of a Greekling. Erudite is someone who has... uh, who's graduated. They've Mm -hmm. been hard-boiled. They're no longer raw. They've learned all the material. So this is a narrative, uh, self-paced, expert, accessible approach to the study of Greek. You learn uh, Attic Greek in this program, which enables you to study the New Testament as well. Little known fact, Koine, the language of the New Testament, is directly descended from Attic. Yeah. So it's a twofer, you might say. Fantastic. So go to mossmethod.com, check out the many free uh, instructional videos I've posted there. If you like the course, Sign up. You can get the office hours with me every week. It's a good value. I don't think there's anything like it available in terms of uh, expertise and price. I think you're right. Now, what about uh, LLPSI? That's correct. So the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, the great textbook put together by Hans Orberg. If you want to study some Latin, you want to go ab initio from the ground up. I can give you a really strong foundation in the Latin language. 
And uh, we just finished up our Black Friday Monsai, mm-hmm. our uh, Black Friday Cyber Monday sale. And um, the course is fantastic. We've got a brand new trailer. I think you've seen that trailer. It's good. Yeah. I like it's that. It's really nicely done. Mishka put that together. Fantastic. She's uh, kind of a Jane of all trades for us. So this course costs $250. It gives you 33 instructional videos where I'm interacting with live students and uh, teaching you the Latin language just from the very basic point. Fantastic. And where, and where can they find that? So you need to go to latinperdiem.com slash LLPSI. Excellent. All right. We got people to thank. Mm-hmm. Mishka, as always, uh, thanks so much to her for all the wonderful work that she does. Yes, and excellent. The quick turnaround that she, right. that she does. Uh, can't thank you enough. Uh, Scott Vinzen, Ken Tamplin, these are the guys that the, that provide the great music that you hear. That's the, right. Uh, at the beginning. The screaming guitar and the nice bumper music for the ads. Very yes. generous, talented musicians. So thankful for their support and help. Right. So, hey, if you want a shout out, if you get an idea for a... Uh, for uh, an episode, a complaint, a question, you can write to Dave at davidadnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V in there. There's no V in Jeff. No. But there is a V in ad nauseum. Right. Also, check out adnauseum.com. Again, the V. Right. And um, uh, check out our, our store there. Right. Pick yourself up a, a nice Quinoket Dokent uh, t-shirt. Yes. You can lurch with merch, as we say. Yes, exactly. Right. And so, I- so next week... We're, we're going to go back into book seven. Back into book seven. Finish. Final episode of this particular book of the Aeneid. Yep. And then we're going to take a break for a couple episodes and mix things up a little bit. Yes. Maybe even have a holiday episode as we're, we're coming up on the end of the year and Christmas and the New Year. Sounds good to me. All right, Jeff, I think you have this week's gustatory parting shot. Yes, this comes from Clive Staples Lewis, who once wrote, He that but looketh on a plate of ham and eggs to lust after it hath already committed breakfast with it in his heart. <laughs> That's a turn of phrase there. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.